welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast. This week, coming to you live from Newport, my name is Dan Schreiber, and please welcome to the stage, it's Anna Chizinski, James Harkin, and Andy Murray. And once again, we have gathered around the microphones with our four favorite facts from the last seven days, and in no particular order, here we go, starting with you. James Harkin. Okay, my fact this week is that Grumpy from the Seven Dwarfs is not nearly grumpy enough. <laughs> Sounds like an opinion. <laughs> it is an opinion, I'd say. It's the opinion of some uh, researchers from Duke University in North Carolina. And what they did is they looked at a load of movies that are aimed at children, so they would be rated U in the UK. They split all the characters up in class. So you have your upper class, your middle class, and your lower class. And they decided that the depiction of working class was unrealistic and that the seven dwarfs would not be singing cheerfully as they walked down to the mine. <laughs> <laughs> so, James, what, who, were, who were the scientists? Um, yeah, they were just people at Duke University in North Carolina. Um, to be honest, they are, you know, they're cartoons, aren't they? You don't really expect them to be all that kind of realistic. But scientists don't like it when you get things wrong. In The Lion King, the hyenas in The Lion King are the bad guys. Uh, and some of the artists for the film spent two days observing hyenas in the hills above the campus of where they were. Uh, and the scientists who were with them said, look, hyenas are good guys. Don't, don't depict them as idiots, <laughs> yeah. as evil people. And they did. And then one of them sued. One of the hyenas? No, not one of the hyenas. No. I mean, that is litigious, and I think they are evil as a result of that. <laughs> no, that wouldn't be very realistic either, would it? No, it was one I of the scientists sued. I would yeah. watch that film, though, in which one of the hyenas from the original film sues the... Ma- you know there's a Lion King uh, 3, which is like... So the Lion King sort of based on Hamlet, yeah. and then the Lion King 3 begins with Timon and Pumbaa, the comedy characters, and they're based on Guildenstern and Rosencrantz ah. in the original thing. But then The Lion King 3 is based on Guildenstern and Rosencrantz are dead, the Tom Stoppard play. <laughs> but no, it begins with Timon and Pumbaa watching The Lion King 1 in a cinema. This is how The Lion King 3 begins. What? And they say, that's not how it happened. We're going to tell the story of how it actually happened. And it's all the other bits. So it's Guildenstern and Rose- Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> are dead. Um, but from the perspective of a wow. war talking the meerkat. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So on the seven dwarves, um, so originally they have no names. In the Grimm Brothers story, they have no names. Okay. And then when Disney did the, the famous film in 1937, they had, this, they had about 50 potential names for the dwarves, which were slowly whittled down. And the rejected names included Jumpy, Deffy, <laughs> uh, Hickey, Baldy, Puffy, Stuffy, and Awful. <laughs> I actually made a list of my dream seven dwarfs. Okay. Because I think so th- these were all on the Disney potentials list as well. There's Slotty, Hotsy, and Chesty, which I think are obviously, obviously a bit of a threesome. Um, and then Awful, Goopy, Snurfle, and Big O Ego. I think that would be wow. a better seven dwarves. <laughs> Ch- Chesty. 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 someone with a cough. Gov cough, yes. <laughs> I actually read that when they picked Dopey as one of the characters that people working at Disney said to Walt Disney that that's not a good name to use because this is meant to be an old tale and Mm. Dopey is a relatively recent Mm. hip name. Um, And so people will think that that's not a good name. Oh, yeah, because like dope just meant good, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. And so Mm. Disney said, well, it's not a new name. It was used in a Shakespeare play. So they went, oh, okay, of course, sorry. 
He made that up. It, it was never... <laughs> He's like, yeah, it's right here. Dopey or not dopey. <laughs> I, actually, um, I actually once lost a school quiz off the back of a question of name all the seven dwarves. Oh, yeah. We got six of them, and we were stuck on the seventh, and my friend, my best friend, Dan, suddenly went, oh, my God, I know it, because it's my dad's name. <laughs> so... <laughs> What's his dad's name? Sneezy. Well, yeah. <laughs> His dad, his dad was a rock star in Australia, a really big rock star ah. called Doc Neeson. And ah. he goes, I know it. Now, Doc is not his dad's real name. So what he ended up putting on the paper as the seventh dwarf was Bernard. <laughs> <laughs> and we're looking at him going, are you sure? And he's definitely, like, grown up. Everyone's like, oh, like the dwarf. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so there was, there's some controversy about this fact because um, obviously it, as a study, some would say it is fatuous, the word has been used, uh, by others <laughs> around this table studying this kind of thing and drawing these conclusions. Um, so I was looking at other potentially fatuous studies and um, <laughs> so there were two studies, one in 2008 and one in 2013, looking at how films can affect people psychologically and so whether you know we should be worried about the effect of Hollywood films, for instance, on society and ourselves. 2008, there was an Edinburgh University uh, recruited 100 volunteers and the study deduced that fans of romantic comedies have a stronger belief in predestined love and they have more unrealistic expectations for relationships. So romantic comedies, bad, give us unrealistic expectations of relationships. 2013, there was another study looking into exactly the same thing, found that there is no correlation between people who are interested in watching romantic comedies and people who have unrealistic ideas about uh. love. So really, you can make a study say whatever it is you want to prove. <laughs> It'd be good if the leads of those two papers got together and then had a beautiful relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the thing. Like, I, I know that sometimes they do seem like they shouldn't have been done, but I love the studies that make no sense. Here's a great one I really like. This is from 2005. Uh, this is what the study was about. Faraway objects are tougher to see. <laughs> and they confirm that to be true. <laughs> Swallowing more than one magnet is dangerous. <laughs> there is, I think it is a problem with kids because um, magnets are sold now as office stress relievers, I think. And um, yeah, apparently, sure. But if you swallow one, it is bad. But there, is, there are like hundreds of people who are admitted to uh, ERs in America every year kids who have swallowed two of them and obviously that really screws up your intestines because as soon as you swallow the second one they try to find each other in your oh, insides whoa. and disrupt everything else in the meantime oh so that is quite bad that is amazing we need to move on to our next fact does anyone have anything before we do uh, i can give you one more study um yep. that's kind of a bit fatuous but also about disney stuff um so they did this thing where they had um, men watching movies and they had some which were sad movies and some which were happy movies and the happy movie was the jungle book which would make everyone happy yeah um, so they made them watch this Jungle Book and then they took swabs from their armpits and then they gave the swabs to women and asked them to smell them and smelled all the different um, armpits of people who've watched all the different movies and they found that people who'd watched happier movies, when you smell their armpits, it makes you smile more. <laughs> what? <laughs> I mean, you can't be smiling much because you're smelling an armpit yeah. swab. <laughs> yeah, it could be more of a grimace. <laughs> Um, okay, it is time for fact number two, and that is Andrew Hunter-Murray. My fact this week is that the ancient Romans had party bags. <laughs> <laughs> so in ancient Rome, if you went to a dinner party, 
uh, at the end of it, you will be given a thing called an apophorator, which literally means a takeaway. So they invented takeaways as well. Um, <laughs> and the, we know about them because uh, there was a poet called Marshall, and he wrote a whole book about them. It's 221 pairs of lines, and it's everything, the things that were given away. So uh, they included toothpaste, whips, seashells, uh, <laughs> bladder footballs, or I think I translated this right, a pastry penis. Um, <laughs> It Don't was... get that in Greg, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And he said, even if you consume every part of it, you will not be the less pure. That's good. <laughs> um, and... <laughs> so they just they had you had this huge range of things you could be given at the end of a night. It was very exciting. Yeah. Wow. Oh. Yeah. You could also take your food away at the end of a night after Roman parties, couldn't you? They had a doggy bag. They had doggy oh. bags. They were the inventors of the doggy bag, which is unbelievably cool. Yeah. I think it was called a map. You had to bring your own doggy bag sometimes, I think. So it was called a mapai uh, or a mapper, I guess, in the singular. And it was a piece of cloth and you'd bring it. And if you had leftovers, you wrap them up and you take them away with you. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm. There yeah. was, I remember reading once that there was, so there were a lot of houses in Rome which were above shops. Uh, and if you mm. lived in one of these flats, they were quite low roofed and um, they didn't want people like the shops to catch on fire. So you weren't allowed to cook in them. And so if you wanted to eat anything, you had to get everything takeaway. Really? Yeah. Wait. It's just a fact. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it's good, that, isn't it? So you'd wow. want to go to these parties all the time to bring your jo- doggy bag home. So what were the yeah. parties like back then? Were they, were they wild? Were they raucous? They, they've, I think they varied like parties today, Dan. <laughs> um, the more I looked into it, they had hot tub parties, I found oh, out, yeah. which I didn't know about. Did they have toga parties? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't wear togas most of the time, did they? Did they no. not? No. I think they wore tunics. Yeah, I think they hated them, didn't they? They had to wear them every now and then, but they were really awkward to wear. Was it not uh, Roosevelt had a toga party because people took the mickey out of him and said that he was acting like a Caesar. And so his wife kind of <laughs> threw a party to, as if to say, like as if to cock a snook to the, um, mm-hmm. to the man. I believe that he happened. He was the man. What are you talking about? <laughs> You're right, yeah. To the, to the little man. To the little man. <laughs> Um, yeah, Roman parties, it's a good question. One of the things that I've always thought would be, have been awkward at Roman parties is the fact that everyone had to lie down. And so at dinner parties, everyone lay down, as we know, and uh, you'd have a couch arrangement where there would be a couch or a bed on three walls of the room, and you'd have the hosts on the middle couch, and then the top guests. There were seating plans, so I think they also came up with seating plans. And the most favoured guests would get the couch where you had the better view of the host, and you had a really nice view out of the building. And then the less favoured guests just got a view of the wall um, <laughs> and you had to lie down and you lay on like your left arm and ate your food with your right arm it all just sounds really uncomfortable um so another thing the romans invented was uh, the concept of deal or no deal <laughs> in that this is invented by the emperor augustus he asked his guests to bid sums of money for pictures when they were when the, they were faced to the wall so you had to bid a sum of money wow. on a picture, which was you couldn't see the value of it. And I gather that that is what happens. That is exactly the same. <laughs> um, yeah. So that is, and then they turn the painting round to reveal it at the end. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That is amazing. That is deal or no deal. That is deal or no deal, yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, and he was amazing, because he did this thing where he said, you, you also, when you went to a dinner party with Augustus, he, uh, you would pay for a token, and it was inscribed with what you might get, but they varied hugely, so you, you couldn't really see what was on the token before you bought it. So, again, it was like a blind auction. That's like a lucky dip. Like a lucky dip. Mm. Um, and so you could either get some gold or you could get a sponge. So it was really varied. <laughs> and then um, a later emperor, Elagabalus, 
he gave out things called Lucky Chances, which were these special spoons, and it was inscribed with what you'd won, and it might say 10 on it, and you'd redeem it, and they'd say, oh, you've won 10 pounds of gold, or it might be that you won 10 flies or something. <laughs> so it really varied, and they started giving them out at the Coliseum. And when they had a lottery okay. at, the, at the games in the Coliseum, it was, uh, you just won a token, and you'd redeem it and see what you'd won. Wow. You might have won 10 bears. How terrifying to have the 10, yeah. yeah. I, you'd wonder. <laughs> 10 times I have sex with your wife. <laughs> it could be anything. You shouldn't ever run the lottery. <laughs> <laughs> um, we need to move on to our uh, next fact. Anyone okay. got anything uh, else? I can quickly tell you that there is £808 million pounds spent on party bags uh, for children's parties in the UK every year. Wow. Wow. 808 million. Apparently, the average bag is worth £7.50, which I think means there's 107 million party bags, uh, which means every child um, gets 30 each. So it goes to 30 parties every year. Every year? Yeah. I, didn't know, of... I did not know 30 people when I was seven. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not 30 would have had me to a party. <laughs> And apparently 2% of, of a 1,000 parents surveyed in one survey said that their child had received an iPod in a party bag. Wow. What? No. Well, who apparently. were they serving? People in Chelsea mansions? <laughs> <laughs> um, I read a, a news article, an American news article, a mother called Sherry Jameson, who was left speechless when she had a birthday party for her son, her six-year-old son, and guests took back the birthday gifts they'd given him when they found out there were going to be no party bags. <laughs> um, the article reported about a partygoer who asked to remain anonymous, saying, a lot of us feel cheated, the kids had fun, but it was a really bare-bones event. It's not like she had a bouncy castle. Um, and she's since received emails and texts from guests who felt it would be in poor taste to take their gift back at the party, but who are now getting in touch to demand to be refunded the full price, including tax of their present. Including tax. <laughs> Let the tax go. <laughs> Um, let's, let's move on to our next fact so we don't run out of time. Okay. Uh, so it's time for fact number three, and that is my fact. My fact this week is that Ernest Hemingway once stole a urinal from a bar saying that he'd pissed away so much of his money into it that he owned it. <laughs> I can tell you from experience that very rarely works on landlords. <laughs> Do you piss on all your furniture? <laughs> yeah, so uh, this was a bar that he used to go to all the time, and uh, it was moving, it was closing down, and so he just went in and he just took the urinal off and he, he brought it back to his house. And, yeah. and uh, James, you've, I know you've been to Ernest Hemingway's house. I have been there, and the urinal is still there. Really? Yep, it's still there, you can see it. And you, when you go to Ernest Hemingway's house in Key West, they make you go on a tour around there, and that's one of the things they tell you, that this is the, this is the story. His urinal's now in the garden, I think? Yeah, and that's it's, right, it's in the back garden. And it's been turned into like a fountain, or yeah. it's a, yeah, it's a nice oh. centerpiece. I think it's quite a nice urinal, actually. If my memory serves, it's quite big and kind of made of big stone, and it's kind of got flowers on it and stuff. I think it's quite nice. Wow. Mm, yeah. Lovely. How did he get it out of the bar? <laughs> <laughs> because I wouldn't know where to begin taking your urinal off a wall. He was a big manly man, sure. though, Andy. And, yeah. you know, you're... Um, I understand. Enjoying <laughs> your wine over there. <laughs> 
You've made yourself very plain. <laughs> he was a big guy, though. You're right. He he was uh, he was obsessed with boxing. He used to take on people half his age, saying and and probably you know same size as him, but yeah. they assumed being younger they could take him out, and he would he would. He win. had his own boxing ring in the back garden. It was next to where the urinal now is, and um, he went off to the Spanish Civil War to act as a correspondent. And while he was there, he had an affair with another woman, and his wife wasn't very happy about that, so she sold his boxing ring and bought a swimming pool and that swimming pool cost $20,000 in those days which now is hundreds and hundreds of thousands and when he came back he had one penny in his pocket and he said you've taken everything I've got have this last penny and he threw it down and it's still there under a bit of glass and you can see it if you visit Oh good, we've preserved the remnants of his childish spoiled brat tantrum forevermore (laughs) (laughs) He, Um, um, just on his manliness he, I love this image he wrote standing up always he wrote he would write in a pencil he wouldn't be wearing a shirt so he had his shirt off wore baggy shorts and they were held up by a leather belt that he'd taken off the body of a dead german soldier that was inscribed (laughs) with the german the third reich kind of uh insignia that's cool isn't it a half-naked man with a third reich belt standing up and writing some novels i think we know your type Just on the pub fights thing, I read that he went out drinking with James Joyce and that James Joyce would get into fights and then say, Hemingway, deal with this! (laughs) (laughs) Because he was too drunk, Joyce was too drunk to stand. This is according to Hemingway. Um, I have a fact about Ernest Hemingway, which is that Hemingway was part kangaroo. (laughs) (laughs) Have you got got Dan's notes there? (laughs) No, he was. He was part kangaroo. Go on. He broke his arm in a car accident, and the surgeon tending him bound his bone together inside his body with kangaroo tendon. Wow. Yeah, and this was a. I mean, that kind of that wasn't an innovation just for Hemingway. It was uh, that was a at at some point a standard medical procedure to put a bit of kangaroo inside you. That's so cool. It feels like the tendons would be kind of stretchier, doesn't it, and bouncier? Yeah. I wonder if they were. That might be why they used it. Yeah. I mean, Ah. I don't know, but anyway, he was. It's not like. All bits of a kangaroo are bouncy, James. Sure they are. <laughs> They're not made of rubber. Do you know when he was a young boy, Ernest Hemingway, when he was a young boy, his uh, mother used to dress him up as a girl because she didn't want a boy, she wanted a girl. And so oh, yeah. she used to dress him up as a girl and call him Ernestine. Mm. Oh. That backfired very badly, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It really did. But it was up until like he was six years old. He was he was going six. around. She grew his hair long. She uh, and he had to pretend to be the twin sister of his older sister. Wow. Yeah. They're a pretty weird family. I read he didn't like his name. He didn't like being called Ernest because it was like um, the hero of an importance of being Ernest by Oscar Wilde. Oh, uh, really? And he was uh, he was upset about that. Because and was, that, that was, was why he objected because he thought that he thought Oscar, Oscar Wilde, Wilde was he an thought Oscar Wilde was effeminate and therefore that he shouldn't be called Ernest. He had huge problems about wanting to be incredibly masculine and sort of hyper-masculine. Yeah, he, he was did. a really like, seriously odd guy. Mm. Yeah. He was also, honestly, go home and spend two hours researching Ernest Hemingway because you think, as I was saying to James yesterday, as you're reading about him, you think, I have not lived. This man has lived. And in so many ways. One of the ways was that he was incredibly accident prone, it seems. So he had this old kangaroo malarkey in his arm. Um, He had a plane crash in 1954. So he was on safari with his wife. He was in Uganda. Um, And his plane crashed, uh, had to crash land, and they had to choose whether to crash land on an elephant trail or in a big crocodile pit. So (laughs) Those are the only options. There's even a tiny strip of land in between the elephant trail and the crocodile pit. What are the odds? 
<laughs> what did they pick? Um, no, they picked the elephant trail. Of course. Uh, so they landed yeah. in the elephant trail. Then he, his wife, and the pilot of the plane had to sleep there overnight because they were surrounded by elephants, blocked in by these elephants. So they were both quite badly injured. And the next day they were rescued by another plane. So they boarded this other plane, uh, which caught fire uh, <laughs> and also crashed the following day. Where did that crash into? Like, do you want to go to the snake pit or the wildebeest <laughs> sanctuary? So the thing is, <laughs> I would pick the wildebeest sanctuary. They'll be calm, they're being looked after. Maybe we could adopt one. What word get... comes after wildebeest for that joke to make sense? <laughs> what about the hyena there? Actually, hyenas are quite nice guys. <laughs> I actually read a thing about wildebeest the other day that I was going to try and use for a main fact. Um, the scientists are saying that uh, they were looking at ancient wildebeests, and apparently ancient wildebeests, um, they evolved a trunk, like a longish trunk, so that they could gossip with each other. <laughs> yeah, because they needed to tell each other, like, you see Jeff over there? Like, they needed to do tiny little what? bits of gossip, and but they couldn't do it with their normal wildebeest face. What? I, I feel like you're paraphrasing stuff. That's <laughs> what it said. It said um, gossiping. Do you know where Hemingway's biggest scar came from? So he had this big scar on his forehead. It was the most prominent thing you'd notice about him in his later life. And it didn't come from the car crash or from the two <laughs> plane crashes or from the motorbike accident he had when he was in Germany. Or the wars that he was kind or of in? Any of the wars he covered. It came from a time he was in a bathroom and he pulled a chain thinking it was the toilet flush and it accidentally brought the whole skylight down <laughs> on his head. <laughs> And that's what gave him this massive scar. And whenever anyone asked him about it, he was really reluctant to say it's from a toilet skylight. So the two plane crashes, uh, there was an interesting thing that actually happened in the time between the first plane crash and the second plane crash, which was he and his wife were reported dead. And it got spread around the world and obituaries were printed the next day. And so he had the rare thing of being able to genuinely see the obituaries to his life. And then the next day he got on a plane and then that crashed again. And that led to severe trauma, which uh, his best friends think is what led to the end of his life for him Mm -hmm. killing himself from that second plane crash. They think it just ruined the rest of his life. Um, But again, you know, you're saying just what an insane character, what a big life. He, during World War II, was hunting Nazis despite not being enlisted into World War II. (laughs) And he did it from his boat. And his boat was set up. It was a fishing boat. It had direction-finding equipment. It had a machine gun. It had grenades. And he went out hunting Nazi U-boats. He used to practice with his son trying to take down U-boats with grenades by throwing them at turtles. Uh, (laughs) I think that was very unfair on the Tursles. A, you're implying they're Nazis, and B, a U-boat is a lot tougher than a turtle. (laughs) Well, that's what he did. Okay, we need to move on to the final fact very shortly. Anything before we do? Uh, Just quickly, he had 52 cats, and he taught one of them... Um, so this is his exact words. Uh, I have taught Uncle Wolfer, Dillinger, and Will to make a pyramid like lions. And <laughs> Sorry, what? Well, I, did, I, think he taught lions, I think he taught his cats to make a human pyramid. I'm not sure. But like lions do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then he said, and have taught Friendless, that was the name of another of his cats, have taught Friendless to drink with me, brackets, whiskey and milk, but even that doesn't take the place of a wife and family. (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, <laughs> it is time for our final fact of the night, and that is Chuzinski. Yeah, my fact is that the official medical diagnosis code for being struck by a chicken is different to the official medical diagnosis code for being pecked by a chicken. <laughs> and this is, uh, the, so this is the International Classification of Diseases, the ICD, and everything that could go wrong with you has an ICD code, so it's now enormous, and every possible injury that's ever been reported has this code. So yeah, there are codes for being pecked by a tri- chicken and struck by a chicken, completely different codes. There's a, there was one new one added in the 70s, which was bitten by an orca. Uh, so there's contact with non-venomous frogs that's one sucked into a jet engine Uh, and injuries caused while knitting and crocheting so all of those things if you go to a doctor or an ER then they'll write down you'll say my knitting needle just jammed into my thigh and then a non-venomous frog landed on it and and they say oh there are two codes for that hold on and write them down and then They've, you know, they've reported it. What is the code for was pulling on what I thought was toilet chain (laughs) (laughs) turned out to be skylight? There would definitely be one for that. There is is one for fall off toilet. That's um, W18.1. Okay. Just to let you know that. (laughs) Um, A few others just because it's a 1,593-page PDF and I read through the whole thing. So... (laughs) Um, fall from a non-moving, non-motorized scooter is W05. <laughs> um, fall into bucket of water. <laughs> not, not trip over bucket of water, but fall into <laughs> bucket of water. That's W1622. Uh, and S30.862 is insect bite on penis. Ah, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> Long list reading. <laughs> uh, this is my favourite one. Uh, V91.07. Burn due to water skis on fire. <laughs> <laughs> Don't smoke on water skis. Yeah. See the signs. <laughs> I was reading uh, an interview with um, someone. So there's a brilliant article in the New Yorker about this. And uh, they interviewed someone who's involved in deciding the new classifications because they quite recently upgraded it and expanded them. And it sounds quite frustrating. She said, you're in this meeting room and you're debating all the things that could possibly happen as well and asking if you should also have codes for them. And so uh, <laughs> she was saying, a question was raised on what codes would apply if a mother was given the wrong baby to breastfeed. <laughs> <laughs> It was stated that that would be outside the scope of ICD coding. So they do have some limits, oh, really? apparently. I read a thing about breastfeeding just this morning, which is that in the 19th century in America, if you had what's called agalactica, which means you can't produce milk for your baby, the way that they would treat it is to put a pancake on your breasts. <laughs> As a, sub- a milk substitute. <laughs> it's got know. milk in it, hasn't it? <laughs> there you go. It's true. I don't know what they thought it would do, but you would put a warm pancake on the breast, and then when it got cold, you'd put another warm one on and keep doing that for a couple of hours. What, and then... what would they do with all the cooled <laughs> breast pancakes? <laughs> Just make some new pancakes, Andy. <laughs> That's very wasteful. Well, yeah. You could give them to perverts. <laughs> Just three pounds will buy four pancakes for a pervert. 
I was reading about the fact that not only do they have these codes that they can write for proper medical use, but they actually, there's a lot of medical slang that gets used, uh, which um, patients, uh, because uh, doctors are telling people at home, they're putting it on the internet, people are wising up to the fact that they use this kind of slang. So, like, for example, one PFO, pissed, fell over. That's what they'll put <laughs> on, the, on the paper as a thing. Um, they'll put uh, brothel sprouts, uh, which is genital warts. I really like that. Oh, nice. Nice. Brothel sprouts, very clever. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, well, I was reading about the fact that the uh, some doctor board now needs to tell doctors not to do this anymore. So they sent out a mass email, and different hospitals are doing this. It's really funny the fact that when they say it, this is a quote from it. Although acknowledging that slang is likely to continue to be used, it should be kept to a minimum. <laughs> so they're like, "Well, we know you're going to do it anyway." So. <laughs> Yeah, but it's, yeah, there's a whole uh, Pratfo, patient reassured and told to fuck off. <laughs> I have read um, articles like that, and some, some doctors go on there and comment and say, no, we don't do this at all. Mm. But then others go, yeah, we do, really. I've got two close friends who are doctors, and both of them say they do it all the time. Do they? Uh, so. Wow. Um, I was reading a thing about uh, bills of mortality, which were these, they were these lists that got published in the 16th and 17th centuries. And it was a record of how people died, basically, in your parish, for example. And every week, the parish clerks would record who had died in the parish and how they died. Um, but they weren't medically trained, obviously, because they were clerks. So a lot of the causes of death are really, uh, they're quite vague. So they <laughs> include things like, um, this is for how they died, um, Griping in the guts, we don't know. Uh, stopping of the stomach, again. And uh, suddenly. <laughs> um, another, this is my favourite from the Bills of Mortality that I managed to read, was cancer and wolf. <laughs> Sometimes you can't know what got them first. No. <laughs> Another one just said, planet. Killed by a planet. <laughs> anyway. um, guys, we need to wrap up fairly soonish, oh, okay. so uh, if you've got any more... I've got to think very quickly on chickens, uh, okay. which is... So this fact was about the medical code for chicken, and it just reminded me that I was reading about a... There's, a, um, there's an Australian fast food chain called Chicken Treat uh, who currently have a chicken doing all of their tweets. <laughs> so... So it basically, it's in its cage. They put a computer in there, and they've put the food onto the keyboard, and so um, the chicken... <laughs> pecks the keyboard for the food and it starts typing stuff out and um, Guinness World Records have said that if it manages to type a five letter word and it's a successfully it's a, it reads as a word then it's going to go into the Guinness World Records as the first non-human to tweet so okay. far it's only managed three letters um, what was the word that it tweeted uh, bum yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anything more before we, uh, before we wrap up? Why couldn't you ask us to follow a chicken tweeting the word bum? <laughs> okay, that's it. That's, uh, that's all of our facts there. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with any of us about the things we've said over the course of this podcast, we can be found on our Twitter accounts. I'm on at Schreiberland. James? At Egg Shaped. Andy? At Chicken Bum. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and Chazinski. You can email podcast at qi.com. Yep, or you can go to our website, no such thing as a fish.com, where all of our previous episodes are. And you can also go to our Twitter account, which is at QI Podcast, and send us all a message. Uh, thank you so much for listening at home. Thank you so much, you guys in Newport. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. Uh, we'll see you again next week. Goodbye. Yeah.